Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Someone told me a rumor that Eastern Border was going to have an episode on Soviet cybernetics. Well, if you end up liking that sort of thing and maybe want to know a little bit more about computing's past, I have a suggestion. Why don't you head on over and listen to my show, Advent of Computing. It's all about the history of the computer with a special focus on the weird and forgotten past. It's impossible to understand the modern day without understanding computing, and the history of those systems is a little harder to wrap your head around sometimes than you'd assume. So why not let me help out? You can find Advent of Computing on any podcast player or at adventofcomputing.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. In this episode, I want to do something truly special. I say that at the beginning of most every episode, to be honest, but this is something close to my heart. As a lot of you know, I used to work in the repair center as a service technician. And that taught me a lot about the history of computers as well, because, well, we had some hardcore old-school guys out there. And as a, a lot of my friends are, computer people, so to speak, I decided that um, it would just be nice to take a look at the history of computing and computers as such in the Soviet Union. And to this end, I have asked my friend Aretz to join us. He's been here on a few episodes before, a while ago though, but hi Aretz. Hi, thank you for having me here. This whole matter of computers is a bit complex as um, everything in the Soviet Union. For starters, before we even get to talk about the machines themselves, we have to talk about the attitude that the computing and the Soviet Union had to overcome. I mean, it was a bit of a hard bargain to do some scientific research when you know that you might be sent to gulags for doing said research. Oh, by the way, didn't they share this with genetics too, I think? Yep, that's exactly right. Genetics was, uh, well, the idea of Mendelian inheritance as such was viewed as glorifying competition and basically written off as a capitalist invention, and it was replaced by pseudoscientific doctrine made by academic Lysenko, which, and I kid you not, replaced the idea of evolution and inheritance with the idea that species evolve in cooperation, in glorious Soviet-style collaboration between each other, which of course led to all kinds of weird agronomical experiments uh, where uh, different plant species were planted together and expected to work together towards a common goal, which 
needless to say, didn't work out, but it was basically mandated by law in the Stalin era for academics to adhere to this remarkable doctrine. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Soviet science was um, often forced to adhere to some certain political principles. And here is um, what the short philosophical encyclopedia of the Soviet Union states about cybernetics. This is from year 1954, and it was edited by two of highly recognized and uh, award-winning academicians uh, from that era. So, you know, it pretty much reflects the official dogma, so to speak. As we will see later, however, the fact that this was popularized towards the common public didn't mean the Soviets didn't do any cybernetics at this given time. In fact, they did quite a lot. But that was because of military reasons. But here we go. <clears throat> cybernetics, from the Greek word meaning controlling, steering, is a reactionary false science that was created in the United States of America after the Second World War and that has wildly spread in other capitalistic countries. It's a form of modern mechanism. The acolytes of cybernetics define it as the universal science about the communications and interconnectivity in technology, living beings, and everyday life. It speaks about an encompassing organization and about the organization and control of all processes in nature and society. With this, cybernetics identifies mechanistical, biological, and social interactions and the patterns of such interactions. As any mechanistic theory, cybernetics denies the specific qualities and particularities of various forms of existence and development of matter, reducing them to mechanistic causal relations. I mean, obviously it's a false science, we just... Clearly, yes, uh, because, you know, things in nature apparently don't follow recognizable patterns and, and don't form controllable systems, which is incredibly ironic coming from Soviet Union, which was pretty much all about, especially at that era, was all about all-encompassing control of people and other things. Uh, <laughs> obviously, obviously, they're doing it in a reactionary way. Yeah. yeah uh, but let's carry on. <clears throat> Cybernetics was created on the basis of modern technological developments, especially on the new, faster calculating machinery, automatics, and telemechanics. It differs from the old mechanistic worldview of the 17th and 18th centuries with the fact that it looks at psychophysiological and social phenomena from the perspective of electronic machines and tools instead of the more simple clockwork ones. Cybernetics compares the workings of the human brain with those of an electric calculating machine and everyday life with the systems of electrical and radio communications. Basically, in the 18th centuries, we saw this uh, whole clockwork mechanism yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. At the 18th but century, it was common to see living beings as uh, mechanisms compared to mechanisms known at that time. The previous paragraph seems rather normal to us now, but it was incredibly tendentious and outright forbidden in the Soviet Union, in the early Soviet Union. Oh, oh but, but here's the important part. Mm. Cybernetics, by its essence, is hostile to and aimed against materialistic dialectics, modern scientific physiology created by our friend Pavlov. If you remember my uh, Animals episode, that's uh, he was yeah. a fun guy, did a lot of cool things. And the Marxistic scientific understanding of the various paradigms of everyday life. This mechanistic, metaphysical, false science has found an excellent fertile ground within the idealistic circles of philosophy, psychology, and sociology. 
See, and that's what I found incredibly interesting and indicative of that time. It's not that they are denying that it doesn't work. Clearly, Pavlov saw animals as systems that can be controlled in systematic ways. It is that this particular approach to systems does not follow the Marxist doctrine and therefore is, of course, invalid and cannot be allowed. It's reactionary and bourgeoisie and everything. Yeah, and... Uh, this carries on. <clears throat> Cybernetics clearly shows one of the founding traits of the bourgeoisie worldview. It's inhumanity. The efforts to turn the working classes into nothing but cogs in the machine, into weapons of industry and weapons of war. Together with this, cybernetics is easily characterized and related with an image of imperialistic utopia. It seeks to exchange a human being, living, thinking, fighting for its own interests, with a cold calculating machine, and it seeks to achieve this goal both in industry and in warfare. The fire starters of a new world war use cybernetics for their own dirty practical dealings. Under the cover of cybernetics propaganda in the imperialist capitalist countries, more and more scientists of various fields are recruited to work out new means of mass destruction of people. Electronic, telemechanical, automatic weaponry, the construction and production of which has turned into a major enterprise in the military-industrial complex of the capitalist countries. In such a way, cybernetics is not only an ideologistic weapon of the imperialistic reaction, but also the means of realizing the aggressive military plans of this evil movement. This, mind you, is an encyclopedia. This is not some on-the-wall propaganda poster. This is an encyclopedia, so, you know, something that's supposed to be objective and neutral, but here we are. And, of course, as we will see later, it is particularly interesting that when cybernetics inevitably started its uh, development in Soviet Union, it was precisely to carry out weapons research and uh, automation of labor as everywhere else. I mean, obviously, uh, it's only done to counteract the reactionary evil tendencies of the capitalist world. Well, yeah, clearly, because it's not that the science doesn't work. It goes against the ideas of central planning and top-down management, instead relying on feedback loops and self-regulating mechanisms, as cybernetics uh, tends to do. So clearly, yeah, it's capitalist, it's reactionary, and, uh, you know, therefore evil. And some Soviets were really good at it. But yeah, let's now look at, well, how everything actually developed. Speaking of encyclopedias spewing propaganda, it clearly didn't limit itself with that. Journals and magazines such as Technica Moldeje, Technology for the Youth, and various uh, literary gazettes and magazines. Cybernetics also was universally condemned in the early 50s up to early 60s, that decade, given such poetic descriptions, along with genetics, which also shared in the same sentiment, as cybernetics is the whore of capitalism, and uh, cybernetics is the weapon of the reactionary expansionist imperialism, which, of course, did not prevent it from being used in the Soviet Union, and as we will see, very much of the both software and hardware development in Soviet Union, especially the early decades, 50s, 60s, early 70s, was defined by weapons development. There you go, because, well, the official birth date of the Soviet computer science in general would be like 
the end of 1948, there in a secret military laboratory in the small town of Theofania, which is not far from Kiev in the Ukrainian SSR, modern-day Ukraine. Because in Ukraine, you have to understand this, they were the leading research facility, country, sort of to speak, in rocket development. Like, Korolev is also from Ukraine. Exactly, yes. And they had airplane development. They did all the military-industrial research parts for the Soviet Union. So, no wonder that in the town of Felfania, one Sergei Alexandrovich Lebedev, who at that time was the director of the Electrotechnical Institute of the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences, and also was a lead researcher in the USSR Science Academy, Precise Mechanics and Computer Technology, well, they started working on a little tiny thing called MESM, or... machine, or the small electronic calculating machine. Smallest in relative terms, but interestingly enough, the MESM was pretty much one of the first computers in continental Europe. Things like uh, the Z4 by Tsuza preceded it, but it was still one of the first. This is late 1948, uh, so despite all the propaganda against cybernetics, against computing, Soviets were very much onto it, mainly because the kind of stumbling project to develop the atomic bomb was faltering it lacked computing power because not everything can be done with the logarithmic ruler and uh, pen and pencil an army of old school calculators which Calc- is a profession by the way yeah but, yeah um so apparently they uh, did all the work in a record short time just about two years and it was done only by 17 people like 12 researchers and five technicians it's just crazy yeah and um Originally, it was planned to be used as a non-working prototype to develop larger systems, but given lack of time and overall pressure and urgency to develop the first atomic bomb, it was uh, decided to go forth with completing the, the layout of the MESM so that it could be used as the semi-code phrase went, capable of quote-unquote, solving practical problems, which meant research and calculations for the upcoming atom bomb. You could do both arithmetics and logics, and it used binary, and it was basically... Yeah, it was a a fully-fledged universal computer, rather primitive, of course, even for other systems that followed it, but it could carry out all the basic instructions, which is... Kind of unusual for the time, it's normal now, but it used a separate instruction for multiplication. It didn't use multiplication as series of additions, which was rather modern for the time. How many operations could it make, though? Uh, It could perform around 3,000 operations per minute, which is, of course, ridiculously low, uh, coming from any hardware, really, from this day and age. But it was still enough to, to do actual actual research and actual practical computations. It was based on uh, vacuum tubes, of course, as pretty much everything at that time. It was built out of around 6,000 vacuum tubes, occupied something around 60 square meters, which is something like 650 square feet. Well, that's uh, that's a lab-sized equipment. That right is there. definitely lab-sized equipment, and it used around 
25 kilowatts of power, so... Wow. <laughs> yes. Wow, okay. Yeah, vacuum tubes, man. Vacuum tubes. This is a little thing that I um, noted for myself, because the very fact to, from switching from vacuum tubes to microprocessors from the transistor thing, the power savings really uh, enable everything to grow so fast as it did, because... Yeah, if we'd switch to vacuum tubes, the power for modern-day computers, the similar computing power would be, like, immense. You'd need probably to have your own dam for it. Absolutely. And, despite it being, like, small and slow... Small for the time. This was, this small was the, for the time. This was the small... Remember that one. Yes. Uh, it actually had some features that were considered pretty revolutionary for the time. It had a printer. What? Uh, it had an electromechanical printer, basically a glorified electrical typewriter, but it was controlled by the device. And it had magnetic drum memory, which could store around 5 kilobytes of data. Kilobytes, not megabytes, certainly not gigabytes, kilobytes. Same goes for the clock rate or, or clock frequency, uh, which is around 4.5 kilohertz. All, all not megahertz, kilohertz. All of the stodgy listeners, you can maybe take a look at your floppy disk. Younger listeners, ask your parents what the floppy disk is. That holds way more stuff that, than this that, that, that holds way, way more. And when I say magnetic drum memory, what you have to imagine is an actual steel drum-like device... Of considerable size. I'm not exactly sure how big were the ones used for MESM, but you have to think something that actually has to be carried by two or more people, like large, large things, uh, loud and rather capricious initially, because uh, no one had figured out the ways to actually read and write efficiently. But yeah, it worked, and that was the start of... Start of another project, because two years later on, Lebedev continued his work and created BASM-1, which is Большая электронная шотная машина, or the, the big electronic calculating machine, which was produced in exactly one... There was only one BSM-1, but that was built already in Moscow, in the Precise Mechanics Institute. And, well, in the Soviet Union's Science Academy's calculating center. By this point, Lebedev was already its director, so... Yeah, so they built it in Moscow, although a lot of the old team worked on it. BSM-1, well, first of all, it was big. Like, it was big. BSM was big. It could create about 10,000 calculations per second. At that point, it was competing with the best computers in the United States, and it was certainly the best in Europe. It was crazy at that point. Yeah, which is another thing that has to be said about the Soviet Union. When their projects got out of the clamps of ideological conformity, when and if they managed to do that, when the directors of the projects got sufficient freedom to actually be able to implement their ideas, uh, their tech, especially military and aerospace tech, was top-notch. Uh, it was good. The development was usually slow because despite the ideals of socialist cooperation and all that, the constructor bureaus competed ruthlessly against one another for premiums and for uh, prioritization by the higher-ups. And, and, and to get some actual good produce in the stores too, you know? Yeah. Uh, which, of course, slowed down all the R&D from a completely unrelated perspective. But 
when and if they got to actually work on their projects and carry out their ideas, it was as good as anything produced in the other side of the Iron Curtain. Same goes for rockets, which I would also love to talk about at some point. We're because gonna, We're going to have to call another friend of ours for, ours for a rocket episode, though. Because the Soviet rocketry program is equally... Interesting, weird, and oftentimes tragic. We'll have to do that because I made an episode about that like very early on my show, and I've grown since then. So they should revisit the Soviet space race at some point. Not just not just about the space, but rocketry in general. However, like I had stated about the competition, see after the orders of our Uncle Joe himself, another project, another bureau was formed in Moscow, also in 1948, which was led by one Lyshenko. See. These people, up until the 1953, created the first universal digital computer, Strela, which could work with 2,000 operations per second. This machinery, because, you know, you really can't call it anything normal, it looks like a large server room these days, this is produced until 1956, and they made seven of those altogether. So this Strela was first actually industrial computer, not specifically created for just military-industrial complex, then again, everything back then was, but it was kind of for smaller projects, because both MESM and BESM at that point, well, existed only in a single thing existed of that thing. So, um, this whole early stage was extremely productive and great. Afterwards, they upgraded the BESM to having to have more RAM, and then there was, like, BESM 2 later on, uh, 1958, which was produced in like multiples of 10 already. Speaking of uh, Strela, a short remark, which uh, some of you might find interesting, and. Strela uh, means the arrow, by the way. Uh, yes. Uh, and which directly relates to my previous uh, comment about uh, rocketry. Uh, Strela was the computing system that was used to perform calculations for Yuri Gagarin's first spice flight. So, the ground center was using one of these computers to perform orbital calculations and data integration from the capsule and things like that. And then there's uh, the first microcomputer, if you can call it that, but it was for the standards of the time. The M1, created by the same company that made the MESM and then BESM, it was launched in December 1951. It was basically the only one that was like inside of Russia itself. It was a small computer, nine square meters only, like tiny. Which is actually small for the time, both in Soviet Union and elsewhere, the proper mainframes took up entire large rooms, think a regular server room today. This was the size of a large shelf or, 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 yeah. It can only, however, calculate 20 operations per second. However, it was of great use in a nuclear... Research Institute of Kurchatov. Like, pretty good. At that point, uh, our researchers state that, well, these computers were intended to be used in smaller scientific scales, not in the big military ones, but hey, ME1 was great. Some of you might wonder, alright, we have all these computers, what programming languages did they use? And, <laughs> ironically enough, Almost all of them used programming languages invented in the capitalist countries. Two of the most used programming languages at the time was ALGOL, ALGOL 60, to be precise, one of the early versions of ALGOL, and FORTRAN for scientific calculations, of, uh, both of them, of course, invented outside uh, the USSR. They did make a number of domestic 
variants of, especially of Algol, called Malgol, which I'm not sure what the M stands for, but it was Algol something something, uh, and Algams, which was another version of the same language, mostly to adapt them to their hardware, to make use of their particular uh, hardware architectures. But uh, yeah, uh, everyone was still using capitalist programming languages to create great Soviet works. Of course. But at the same time, by the way, the upgrade of M1, it got upgraded. It got a bit larger, but not that huge. It basically reached uh, the Strela levels of 2000 operations per second. However, oh, it chugged energy, obviously, tons of it. And it was produced first in 1953. That was considered the best computer at that era in the Soviet Union. And it also managed to win the first international chess competition between computers. Which is pretty great. That is that is great. Uh, that is actually pretty significant. One thing that has to be said about M1 and M2. Those were one of the first computers for general usage. Because here is the difference between Soviet Union and basically the rest of the world in terms of uh, building computers, especially at the time, 60s. Most of the computers were, I wouldn't say single task built, but they were purpose built. They were computers built specifically for anti-air defense, uh, computers built specifically for radar stations or ICBM launch complexes or airports ship ports, ships themselves, or submarines, which were one of the things the Soviet Union poured rather large amounts of resources into, they occupy a weird niche that I haven't really found very much in uh, other countries at the time or later. They are universal computers. You could, in principle, run any sort of software for it, but they are with added modules and added sometimes even specific added processor instructions that were specifically built to do this one task optimally. Uh, so, yeah, you could technically like run early games on it or, or write texts or, or do some sort of uh, economic calculations or whatever, but no, these were built to do this one task, like launch rockets or track rockets or... Anyway, back ah, to you. draw targets on the map where our glorious Soviet missiles shall go. <laughs> uh, yes! Basically, yes. Uh, basically, yes, and I have seen one of these early consoles myself, a rather large oscillograph-like screen, a round screen with coordinate grid on it, and it actually used one of the very early input devices, it was called a light pencil, something similar to an early stylus used in, say, drawing today. Kind of like a laser, laser uh, pointer uh, thing? Uh, there was a... No, it worked exactly the other way around. The screen emits light, and the pencil has a photo sensor uh, in the end of it, which then translates to... Oh, okay. I, I need to mention this. Uh, also, the Soviets experimented with a lot of crazy ideas, including the field of cybernetics. So they built the first and so far only trinary computer on the planet, yep. called Saturn, which is a weird thing. They built 50 of the things. Please do explain how trinary logics differs from our very common binary ones. In, okay, in well... Uh, trinary, trinary logic and trinary arithmetics, of course, uses uh, three values instead of two. 
Well, the third is that like a two? Well, it's however you want. There are several formats because in binary you have only a single option. There's no way to really represent it any differently. But in trinary you have, for example, a balanced trinary which uh, has minus one, zero, and one. Uh, sometimes uh, you can also use trinary numeral system which uses exactly zero, one, and two. But it doesn't really matter, because in the end of the day, they are symbols to represent three different states. And um, it is exactly, as you said, it is one of those weird early experiments, because there is no real advantage to using trinary or ternary, uh, as it's sometimes also called. It made a bit of sense at that time in a single way. In Trinary logic, you can use less logical elements to do the same job. They are more complex because they have to handle three states instead of two, but you can use less of them. So the same Setun was about 2.5 times cheaper than another binary computer of equal power. Mm. Uh, so basically, that was, that was, I think, the point of it. Trying to make weird architecture that is cheaper, more economical, because, of course, uh, suddenly everyone needed computers. This is the early to mid-60s, when computers were accepted as a mainstream thing at that point, and no one tried to limit or ban them anymore. Uh, and suddenly everyone needed it. Factories, uh, airports, military complexes, everyone needed computers, and uh, this was one of the attempts to make them cheaper. Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to russansov.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If we're now up to up to this era of computing, well, then we have to speak about transistors. This is the moment where, in the late 50s, early 60s, this is where 
vacuum tubes go out and good old transistors come in which is kind of great they were invented in the united states but yeah the soviets quickly stole the blueprints and started using them a lot and then well we had this period of truly explosive computing uh, developments here a lot of computers were just numbering and, and well at that point tens and there's like lots of them there was uh, m220 and then there was Minsk II and Nairi built in Yerevan, Armenia. And a lot of computers for military aims, like M40, 40,000 operations per second, and M50. M50, by the way, had some vacuum tube components, however, but... Yeah, and this is the characteristic property of computers of the very early transistor era. Vacuum tubes were still very much used uh, for basically two reasons. First, everyone was familiar with them. Transistors was the new and obviously huge potential technology, but uh, everyone knew how to build hardware with vacuum tubes. And second, the late vacuum tubes were incredibly stable. If the early vacuum tube computers constantly blew them out and, and they had to be either kept warm uh, all the time, as you know, uh, the vacuum tube has a heating filament, that had to be kept constantly on, which obviously contributed to the power consumption. And the third reason is uh, rather interesting and actually directly related to the military again. A vacuum tube is much, much more resistant to electromagnetic pulses than a transistor. There's really not that much in a vacuum tube that you can blow off with the magnetic you, pulse. Yeah, so basically, uh, computers uh, that had to withstand ionizing radiation and electromagnetic pulses were built using tubes up to actually late 80s for the military purpose, uh, except the tubes got smaller and smaller, and I have seen the really tiny vacuum tubes, which are 5 millimeters tall, tiny glass bulbs. But, uh, yeah, uh, vacuum tubes in general computing went out relatively quickly. In specific military and industrial applications, they, they lingered on for for a good while. Well, I have to speak about, like, the peak of this era is 1967, and that's, it would be the BESM-6, still produced by Lebedev, no less. I mean, at that point, he ran a huge team of people, and, well, his career got up from 1948, where he was, like, stopped in a tiny little lab near Kiev. Now he had to work with the best minds of the Soviet Union, which was quite a lot of minds. I mean, it was a huge place. And they built BESM-6, who could actually reach, finally, one million operations per second, and this is 1967. So, well, this was quite a large result at the time. They built it, like, 355 of them, no less, and they built them up until 1987, because it was, well, very functional, and it could run things it, super fast. It was very good. Uh, at the time when BSM-6 was released, the leading supercomputer architecture in the West was the CBC 6600, I think. That clocked out at around 2 MIPS, 2 million instructions per second. Uh, so this got up to half that, which is very significant. It had a very unusual 48-bit architecture, somewhere between our known 32 and 64. And um, it almost had multiple cores. It had 
two instruction pipes. Uh, basically, in the CPU, there were two parallel paths of execution, which is not quite two separate cores, but it had some parallelism built in, and uh, it uh, clocked out at around uh, 10 megahertz uh, CPU frequency, so uh, quite a lot for late 60s. It, it apparently could hold, hold like 14 machine instructions at the same time in the processor too. Here's another thing that has to be said about early computers and their descriptions. Uh, almost no one used bytes as a measuring unit at the time. Now we, of course, do. But uh, the uh, nominal unit of memory size and, and disk space and so forth was machine words, which could be of different lengths, depending on the architecture. The addressable space uh, for the BSM-6 was 32 thousand machine words, which uh, results in 192 kilobytes, which is pretty significant again for the time, and last but very much not least, it was one of the first machines in the world to support virtual memory, the same virtual memory concept as we use today, which uh, allowed to use part of the disk space as a surrogate RAM, and that expanded the addressable memory up to 768 kilobytes, almost a megabyte. Wow, that is that is pretty pretty neat. However, well, like I said, this was the the glory point of everything. There was a lot of teams who created a lot of those computers. Like Lebedev, first and foremost, is definitely the father of the Soviet computing. And this was. This was the greatest era of the Soviet cybernetics, so to speak, because, well, all of these things were researched separate, researched separately, and they could they could do various tasks, and they were like very progressive for their era. However, however, there was a problem with them because you know, as various competing teams created all these computers, they were totally incompatible between each other. They had to work around in a, like in very complex ways to make sure that they could work together. However, in the end of the 60s, the USSR government in Moscow decided the, one of the most catastrophic decisions and, and laws, which they did with basically everything. They decided that they now should only focus on building clones of various Western computers. They started working with, with IBM stuff, and they just thought that they could just steal the programming, so the era of innovation was gone yeah. to a point. Yeah, uh, and this is something that can be kind of hard to grasp from an outside perspective about the Soviet Union. Despite the image of unification and doing everything according to a single plan, there were an absolute lack of standards, especially in computing. Every bureau made their own hardware and software that mostly run only on that machine, and uh, these bureaus competed ruthlessly for prizes, for recognition, for proprietorization, leading to a situation where Soviet engineers and Soviet programmers used raw machine code in their programming up until basically 80s, because usually there were no such thing as a compiler or, or, or operating system or any other major software component that ran smoothly on 
multiple different machines. Every machine was a world of its own, much, much more than at that time in the West. Speaking of the West and making clones, of course, there uh, one of the most famous systems in the Soviet Union was the ES mainframe series, which were basically direct clones of IBM's System 360 and later System 370. Yeah, because these, these developers, you see, they were... It's kind of hard to switch around if what you're doing is like true innovation and you're trying to be creative. And then the government decides that, no, 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 um, you know, we, we're, we have some GRU guys who have stolen some code from their systems and we need to crack them and let's build some clones that'll make everything easier for us when we steal things. And um, one of the engineers at the time, Baba Yan, states that, you know, the general view was the fact that we could steal a lot of software and, you know, we will have a glory, another more, even glorious days in our own Soviet Union, but that didn't happen. It's because, you know, when they dumped all the other little kind of competing bureaus in the same spot, the creativeness was kind of over, because they couldn't compete, and they basically just were only tossed to guessing how, how they people produce things in the West, and often the, the computers they were forced to copy were kind of less advanced than what they had built themselves. So kind of depression and burnout sets in. They couldn't do anything more progressive and anything new. And besides all these new software things, again, all the computers are separate and whatever GRU steals, they very rarely stole things in complete fragments. So what you got was large patches of code without the complete code. And reverse engineering that is pretty bad. However, you know, you can't really give them a lot of slack because when they did clone something, it worked. It, they were pretty good at this. It, I mean, they were talented people. It but... worked. Yes, the series was so successful that it continued well after the end of the Soviet Union. And the last versions of that series were released as late as 1998. Uh, however, another major blow towards... Not only computing, but science in general in the 70s, mid-70s, was that basically the Soviet Academy of Sciences, due to pressure from ministries and uh, basically political uh, influence, it was relegated from a major R&D center to a basically monitoring and consulting role that took it out of most large research programs at the time, which, of course, considering that in the Soviet Academy of Sciences uh, worked some of the brightest minds in Soviet Union at the time, uh, it was a major, uh, major blow and, and uh, uh, one that Soviet science never really recovered from. Yeah, this, this kind of one of the more technological things that uh, I spotted here is the fact that they could steal, for example, the motherboard or something, but they couldn't really steal all the processes of how it was made. Electronic engineering, like in mass production specifically, it was never the Soviet Union's strong side. So when they tried to build their own boards with uh, United States topologies of how everything works together, but with Soviet components, yeah, a lot of these things just plainly didn't work. They had to create their own solutions and, you know, and a lot of these people who worked there claimed that nobody knows why or how, but the uh, politicians at the time who really didn't understand anything about computers kind of killed the whole idea and everything, which was pretty, pretty bad. But um, then, then we go on to the clone business. However, that itself had a bit of a heyday in all of this cloning. 
since the best known computers of the Soviet era, and slightly over that, are a different type of clone, which I think should be spoken about next. And yeah, now we're switching to personal computers. By the way, I have to give you a little excerpt from the, the speech of the um, Radio Industrial Minister of the Soviet Union. <clears throat> Quote, Guys, stop doing nonsense. There is no such a thing. It cannot exist such a thing as personal computer. You can have a personal car, personal pension, personal dacha. Do you even know what a computer is? A computer is a hundred square meter large thing with 25 crew manning it and 30 liters of, of booze per month. <laughs> yes. Which, of course, at the time was not wrong. If we look even at the late mainframes such as Elbrus or late... Yes, systems. Yeah, they were large. Uh, they were manned by crews, at least in dozens. And, you know, they, they were definitely drinking. At least the minister was informed well enough to know that, you know, the, the booze they request for um, things goes... Well, it goes into cleaning things. Mental images, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, the Soviet computer industry continued to stagnate all the way through the... 1980s, and they resulted to, to more clones, this time clones also of personal computers, which were quickly becoming a thing in the West, and of course, Soviets didn't want to completely uh, be left back. The first guys, by the way, was um, kind of, they, they started working on, um, like, the Soviet youth technology magazine, but then they also started, you know, producing radio amateur magazines, because radio stuff was super popular in the Soviet Union. Mostly to catch Western music, but, you know, still. However, the beginning of all, all this personal computing for personal use existed in a publication in a series of articles called To Radio Amateurs About Microprocessors and Microcomputers. This was pretty big. I mean, because at that time it wasn't enough that you know how to run software on your computer. Oh no, if you wanted to play some games or do anything on a microcomputer, oh, you better know how to solder too. Yeah, that is one. And second, you had to know programming, at least some solid basics. Basics being a rather significant word here, because BASIC was one of the most popular programming languages in the late 70s, all the way through the 80s, for the amateur. It wasn't really suited for large-scale operations, although it still was, especially in more limited systems, but BASIC was what everyone was programming in their home computers or computers of the local computing club, because personal computer in the sense that you own it was still a rare thing. It, they were very costly, and of course there were queues uh, after them, as after everything in the Soviet Union. So the most common scenario where you got to actually play around with the computer was in your local towns or cities computing club where might have even several computers and, uh, you know, people took turns uh, using them, playing with them, programming and, and learning things. And um, basically at the 80s, the, the situation was that there were more qualified programmers in the Soviet Union than there were computers to work on, which was another thing that created the pressure to produce relatively cheap uh, personal systems and kits. At that time, mostly produced by the Ministry of Radio Technology, by the way. Yeah, the, one of the more famous computers is called Corvette, which is an 8-bit personal computer built in Baku, Azerbaijan today, in the... <clears throat> 
producing cooperative radiostroyenie, or radio building stuff. A lot of these things were just truly focused by adapting radio technologies, and that is why one of my other friends uh, stated that, at least here in Latvia, we had this radio factory, radio part factory, and the biggest issue with them was the fact that they didn't make the switch to microprocessors, however. Yep, that's exactly And also, also they, they tried to introduce, later on, they tried to introduce this in schools, and uh, before recording this episode, we spoke about one of our more kind of important childhood books, how Peter's Basicons is teaching programming to Maya Sofratelja. Like, it's a, it's an amazing little book from a bit later on, but it teaches you basic, it teaches you what an algorithm is, what a computer is, and it gives vague predictions about how computers will look in the future. Yes. Which are, um, well... It is a silly little book, but it does teach you, admittedly, a very archaic dialect of basic, even for the time, but it does teach you all the essentials of programming, switches and loops and, and, and stuff like that, and so many kids, in, especially in Latvia, in the Baltic states, had their first steps in programming guided by this little, little book. It was released in a whole series of books about science and technology for the youth called The Green Ray. And uh, this bring, brings back a lot of pleasant memories for the time. The biggest thing, specifically, by the way, for our British fans here, will be the fact that... Uh, your specy, your good old ZX Spectrum, and yes, it's always ZX. Uh, don't try to call my beloved specy otherwise, Americans. Yeah, built by Sinclair Research in the United Kingdom, it takes a very special place in the Soviet Union as well. <laughs> because, well, we had clones. We had ridiculous amounts of ZX Spectrum clones built here. What was it? Uh, like, we had a bunch of names of them. Um, Hobby, Lvov, Moscow, Leningrad, Pentagon. Scorpion, Delta, Composite, Sogdiana, or even Sputnik at some points. Specky was just crazy because, well, as it wasn't military... It was relatively simple, relatively capable. 48 kilobytes of RAM for the time was, you know, pretty solid. Also, it supported color screens and uh, color outputs, so, of course, uh, it was very appealing for uh, people who wanted to make and uh, play games. It might not appear so, maybe, but there were tons and tons and tons of games, of computer games in the late Soviet Union. Most of them didn't even have names, because this was some sort of platform were made by the local guy in the computer club in our computer magazines. Uh, same, as in, same as in the West, but uh, very much here as well. Uh, computing magazines usually had listings of uh, programs and games in the back of the magazine where you could type them in and, uh, you know, replicate the, the game on your own computer because things like uh, floppies uh, were pretty expensive. Uh, here's a, here's the thing that uh, ties very well together with radio amateur, with the ham radio hobby. Oh, glorious, glorious piracy! Yes, Glo the best form of piracy. Glorious Glorious radio piracy. Uh, you might wonder how does that work? Well, first of all, piracy was very well and good in the late Soviet Union. Oh, yeah. uh, oh. Everyone was copying software and sending them around, and there were really no laws against it at the time, unless you managed to get your hands on something classified, in which case you had bigger problems than just illegal software. One of the ways uh, software was 
distributed. It ran on tapes. Uh, we used... I know this is a thing in the West too, but uh, we here used a lot of standard tape recorder tapes uh, for storing data and, and, and software. So, at the end of some popular radio program, the, the announcer says that now we are transferring to a software acquisition segment. Please turn on your tape recorder and make everyone in your room go silent. And for the next half an hour, there's a series of chirps and bleeps that basically <laughs> records the software in your, in your tape. Transferred on public radio, mostly on small stations, of course. And yeah, that was uh, that was a rather unique thing. And of course, under there was also like underground wares stations which did nothing but but send these with exactly like that that program. One of the reasons why this was so popular because was because the original the the Specky processor was Zilog Z80, and its structure was like totally open to everyone. However, the ULA microchips and the devices where a lot of parts were, were of the computer, well, yeah, Sinclair Research protected that thing. That doesn't stop Russian hacker. So, um, a lot of people from Lvov, in their nice little spare time, just reversed engineered that completely. And they spread the word around. So, so that everyone could, could make their own clones. So, like, this went to such a huge degree that, uh, like, even after this collapse of the Soviet Union, even even then, like early '90s was just also another glory days where all these clubs just happened everywhere. People upgraded their Specky clones. They installed more RAM in it. They just made it better. Like if you want a Specky these days, I'd actually recommend buying a clone from the early '90s, Soviet built. Well, now yeah, the Russian built because it'll run faster. It'll do everything the Specky can do, and the programming like it was easy to get the software for it. Like, like yeah, and that is one thing these underground piracy groups and clubs did. They imported uh, foreign games and software for the Specky because you know it's one thing to get the hardware, but people were very much enjoying the ZX Spectrum uh, in the West as well. And uh, there were tons of games, tons of uh, utility software, uh, even whole new operating systems. And of course, those were getting pirated in the USSR. We had our own Zeki Demosphere too. Oh, and apparently uh, in Russia, they had their own FIDO network analog just for Speckies. It was called ZXNet. Yep. Why not? Why not? Specky demo scene. Specky demo scene is still well and alive, especially in Russia and associated countries. Uh, here in Latvia, I also know a guy who still does demo coding for ZX Spectrum. And uh, yeah, it is a little piece of hardware that just refuses to go out. I'm pretty sure we get a lot of comments on that. But yeah, moving forward, however, you know... At that point, with the Specky, this is where we kind of can put the end point of specifically Soviet computer history. To learn more, please go and visit our friends, whom you heard at the beginning, the Additive Computing Podcast. Highly recommended. Uh, I've spoken a lot with the guy on, on Twitter and everything, and the show's great. I've subscribed myself. And Same. this is just something. If you, if you care about history of everything, well, remember that um, even things you might think are only exist somewhere out there in, in the West. No, no. We Soviets have our own specific where the strong Soviet computer crushes the weak capitalist one. <laughs> Obviously. I'm pretty sure after the chess victory with the M1, I'm pretty sure there were caricatures. I, I 
didn't find them, but I'm pretty sure there were caricatures of the strong Soviet computer beating the rotten and filthy <laughs> capitalist one. Used for military goals, yes. Well, okay, uh, that'll be it for today. Thank you, Aritz, for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And, uh, of course, these things can be talked about for hours on end, but I hope we managed to give you some some short insight into the weird and sometimes wonderful history of Soviet computing. And, yeah, we will definitely... Well, we'll we're going to have to talk to Boris about that one. But uh, I think we could we could truly work together in the future with the with the Rock Tree episode, definitely. Oh yes. So yeah, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please leave us a comment or follow us on social media. Become our patron to support the show. Also, just go to theeasternborder.lv and you can like click the PayPal button there. We're gonna be uh, switching our our feed stuff soon too because apparently feeder is no longer supported. And yeah, Rusensov magazine. They're also nice people. If you buy something, some of the, some of their souvenirs, it's gonna be great. So, see you next time. We're gonna be looking at more politics, because, you know, a lot of events have happened since the Olympics ended now. And uh more can I say? The Sudanya Tarishi. And uh happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.